Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, it's good to be with you as always, and today we are going to be looking at two news articles, and not really news articles, but they're really more opinion pieces in a a little news source called the Huffington Post. If you have not heard of the Huffington Post, you're not any less for it. It's not exactly the most trustworthy source. However, it is a bit of a uh, telltale sign as to how the secular culture thinks about Christians. And every once in a while, you'll see some very revealing articles as to how people think that you should think about things. And so it's revealing with regard to that. It's a very, very liberal source. But I think there's some benefit to looking at some of these articles because they give us insight into how the secular mind works. And so the whole point of this podcast is to address things that relate to scripture and theology. And part of that would be the branch of apologetics. And I think that this is helpful with regard to that. Looking around, not every individual that is a non-Christian would think these thoughts. However, it gives insight, I think, into how to see some of the things that are happening uh, around us. So I think it'd be helpful. The first article that we're going to look at is datelined September 17th, 2020. And the article title is, I was an evangelical Christian, and I know why many of them resist logic about COVID-19. So this comes from a writer, Karen Alea, I think is how you say her last name, A-L-E-A. And she's claiming to be a former evangelical Christian who has since left the church. And she claims that her inside knowledge gives insight as to why many Christians are very uh, against some of the logic, according to her terms, about COVID-19. So she leads off her article with the tagline, the global pandemic has revealed there's already a virus inside some American forms of belief. So she starts off talking about how growing up, the best testimonies in church were always from addicts and ex-cons who started with the statement, if it weren't for God, I might be dead now. And then she goes on to say, in 2020, I wonder the opposite. If it weren't for no longer believing, I could be dead now. And so it's it's interesting. Her comparison contrast is she's basically saying, if I were still a Christian, then I would likely be dead or I could be dead now because of my belonging to this Christian belief, because of how they treat COVID and things like that. Now, she goes into a little bit of her backstory here, which I think is interesting. She talks about graduating from a Southern Baptist college. We're not told which Southern Baptist college it is, uh, but I think that would be interesting to be able to tell what kind of Christian education she actually got. But we are told that she wanted to be a missionary. So this this individual who uh, is known as Karen, Karen went uh, to be an overseas missionary and she really wanted to live for her savior and be diligent for living for him. That's according to her her words. And she says this, for someone like me, whose only desire in life was to have a close relationship with God and to feel this closeness, 
I believed God would put things in my path to bless me or test me. Both would make me stronger in my faith. Now, already, uh, there are some red flags here. And I think this is when, when, and this has been popular more and more as we see the culture devolving into secularism and away from any kind of Christian origin. There is this, what's known as a deconversion story or a, or a pride in your deconversion story where you say, I used to be a Christian until I actually learned the truth or whatever. And what ends up happening in a lot of these stories, there have been a couple high profile ones. Uh, one of the most famous ones over the last couple of years was Joshua Harris, uh, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And so you have these famous deconversion stories where these individuals are turning their back on the church, on, on Christ and his word. And what often is the mark of all of these stories is this incredible shallowness in understanding scripture and shallowness in understanding the things of God. Now, as we talked about on a past episode with regard to even evangelicals, there is a tremendous shallowness in evangelical belief. Uh, statistically speaking, in the churches that claim to be evangelicals, there's a lot of evangelicals who don't even understand basic things like the Trinity. And so for somebody like this, there are a bunch of red flags which which really jump out at us because this individual says the the primary desire, in fact, according to her words, it's her only desire in life, was to have a close relationship with God and to feel this closeness. Well, right away, if I was talking to somebody like this, I would say, listen, that is anti-biblical. That is t- to pursue a feeling and to be seeking a feeling of closeness with God is not the essence. And that's not the, the, the primary desire that we need to have in life as Christians. Obviously, what scripture teaches is the primary purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So in one sense, glorification of God is the primary m- reason that any creature exists but there is no concept of this whatsoever in her teaching. It's very self-centered with regard to what she's going to get out of this relationship. It's what she wants most of all. And so that's, uh, you know, very telling, I think, as far as the genuineness of this faith. In fact, this, in this article, she goes on to detail just how passionate she was. And by the way, as she's t- giving this testimony, it's obvious that she wants to convince the hearer that she was genuinely entrenched as deep as you can go in the Christian church. But as I see her testimony, and as any mature Christian would read her testimony, all we would say is that this is completely, you're completely off the mark with regard to this. So anyway, she goes on, and this is this is how uh, how she explains it. She says, while she's at an international missionary base training to spread the gospel, she was surrounded by people in their 50s and their 60s telling me how God wanted to bless me with my own prayer language. And so growing up Southern Baptist, she goes, she explains that she didn't believe in speaking of tongues, uh, but she wanted this. She wanted this closeness to God. And so she just said, but I wanted this. So again, this is just a very simple heresy. It's making God in our own image. We're, we're saying, okay, this is what I want in my life in order to, to feel closer to God or whatever. Basically, what it comes down to is, as many apologists have pointed out, James White is very famous as saying this. Al Mohler says this is that theology matters. What your theology is, what your understanding of scripture is matters because it doesn't matter what you want. Honestly, that's the least 
Mo- that, that's the least important concept in relationship to God. What you want has absolutely zero to do with anything about who God is or what is true. Absolutely zero. And so when she's using this kind of language, I'm just seeing red flags all over the place. And part of what makes me wonder about this is, well, this is indicative of a problem in the church is if we're letting individuals like this go out to be missionaries, where in the world is her oversight? Where in the world is a church that's keeping her accountable for her beliefs? I mean, this is, this is just insane. This is why being a missionary, being involved in ministry, there needs to be heavy accountability involved because it's the worst thing in the world to send somebody to be a missionary to people who isn't, this individual isn't even a Christian. They don't even understand basic theology and yet they're trying to convert individuals or, or to share theology and the gospel. This is, this is really sad with regard to that. In fact, she says, this is her testimony again, quote, as a Baptist, reading the Bible and being good was the measure of a true Christian. And so you just kind of have to stop and say, what? Reading the Bible and being good, that's how you measure whether or not you're a true Christian. Now, granted, I'm all for reading the Bible and I'm all for doing good works. Those are biblical concepts. But what kind of church are you in that's saying reading the Bible and being good, that's how you know you've made it. No, that's that's completely ridiculous. Now, she's giving that in contrast because she's saying that she was experiencing something better than that. And so she realized that she wasn't letting go of her intellectualism. And so that was, she ends up at this missionary training uh, base or whatever. She ends up being told by the individuals that she needs to get rid of this demon of intellectualism because she had gone to, quote, Bible college. And so that had caused her to be too intellectual and she had been thinking too much and too logical and she had been trying to put God in a box and that was holding him back from, from blessing. So they, they tell her to stop thinking, stop thinking, stop thinking. And again, I say, where in the world is this missionary camp? This is not uh, biblical in any sense of the word. This is, this is foreign. This is antithetical to what the scriptures teach. Scriptures are very clear that what is to be elevated is the noble Bereans who search scriptures and see whether something matches up with the scripture, right? And so just to, to rid your rationality, to, to get rid of your logic and throw those things, that's not Christian. And so this is what she's pursuing at this point in her life, though. And she goes on to say that going through this process, she ended up being able to get five words of tongue speaking and she held on to those and she went off, uh, she went off to be a missionary to Asia and she took those five words with her. And so she says, quote, I'd whisper them, which are the five words under my breath while teaching English as a guise to convert the young Buddhist monks in a temple. I'd, I'd let more sounds come out as I prayed over strangers to be miraculously healed of physical sickness. So in other words, now she's basically using those five words and a few other sounds, as she says, as some sort of magical incantation, which again goes completely against what we see in Matthew 6 about, uh, you know, your father knowing what you, what you need even before you ask and don't ask on account of your many words and things like that. This is, this is obviously just a made up, uh, religion. It's, it's nothing to do with Christianity. And so I say again, where in the world is there accountability? How in the world does all this work? Now, we, we read through this and it's, 
you know, it's, it's just really sad because she, she says that this spiritual fervency ultimately leads to her deconversion. She says, the problem with this fervency is that it led to in-depth Bible reading and searching out secondary sources to support my beliefs. Both flung me into a decade of deconversion and I'm currently a skeptic. So again, this is completely opposite of how it should work. When you have a desire to read scripture, that's not, you're not going to come away from reading scripture and, and understanding it with this, this deep seated, oh, I guess, you know, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about or anything like that. That's not, that's not how it works. There's nothing that, there's no reason you should be afraid of reading scripture. The more, the most brilliant people that I've ever known are in depth Bible scholars, they love the word. They have large sections of it memorized. They can read it in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and whatever. It's This is completely antithetical to their experience. And again, we're not arguing from experience, but I'm just saying the Bible isn't the problem here. The problem is that she likely has no foundation for understanding scripture. She has no good church that she's a part of that's helping her understand these things. And so she's basically a Lone Ranger Christian missionary, and she's lost. She's just completely lost doing her own thing, and her flesh has a really easy time uh, uh, in destroying any kind of conviction that she has with that. And it's obvious at the end that she was never a Christian to begin with, but it's it's sad that that this individual would have such a uh, marked testimony against Christianity because of her supposed status as a missionary and a graduate from a uh, Southern Baptist college. You, you list these things and you wish that somewhere along the line there would be some intense discipleship and really exp- exposing the immaturity of her, of her faith or lack thereof. And who knows? Maybe there, if we, if we did see people who were involved in her life, we don't get a clear picture here. There may have been churches where they tried to intervene and she just left. That could be. She's obviously giving a biased testimony, so we don't see the full expose. But at the same time, these are things that a mature Christian needs to be thinking about is we want to avoid individuals like this representing Christianity because of the danger that they pose, because of the the negative influence that they would they would give to the church. Now, her big takeaway, she, all of that is lead up to her main, main point in that she, she locks into this huge logical jump here where she says basically Christians aren't skeptical at all. Uh, they, they're basically unrational or irrational, I suppose we would say. So, Christians have, have no logic, have no reason behind their beliefs. This is, this is who they are known for. So she says this, back then there was no skepticism in me and it was seen as a sin to entertain it. So I am not surprised there are groups of Christians who believe COVID-19 is a hoax or even if it's not a hoax that God will protect them. So this is a huge logical jump, right? Because she's saying, oh, because Christians are all like me, it's obvious that, you know, they're going to just ignore COVID or think it's a hoax or just think God's going to protect them. Now, granted, I, from her testimony, it would not surprise me at all that the people she was hanging out with might fall into those groups, okay? But this is being painted as this is, this is indicative of all Christians. And obviously 
the reason we look at an article like this would be to show that this is how people in the world are being told Christians act. And so on the one hand, you need to understand how people are trying to view Christians. They're trying, people are, secularists like this are trying to tell other secularists, this is how we view Christians. This is how Christians operate. This is, this is the norm for Christians. We could even say it's something like that. And so we need to be aware of that because this is something that needs to be corrected both by our actions as well as with our, our own, uh, discussions with our unsaved neighbors and, and fellow, uh, Americans and what have you. So she goes on to talk about this, uh, and she says, and this is just really, uh, pointed. She says, if I hadn't left the church, would I believe masks aren't needed, like the doctor and minister Stella Emanuel, who preached in front of the Capitol while touting hydro, hydro, hydroxychloroquine as a cure? Let's try to say that three times fast. Uh, would I be attending outside praise and worship services like the one Sean Fucht led recently, gathering upward of 11,000 unmasked believers? Question mark. She says, if I hadn't left the charismatic movement that was always requiring God to do tricks and encourage me, encouraging me to walk out in faith, I have no doubt I would be attending a church in person. I have no doubt I'd attend purposeful, God is more powerful than COVID-19 gatherings, like the young woman who died from the virus. She gives a link there to a, a woman who allegedly died from the virus. I haven't had a chance to explore that link or anything like that. She says, I'm sure I would stand by any number of explanations used to explain away those who got infected, the person who had a weakened immune system, or they were reckless to start with. I'd probably think something like that. So basically, she is arguing that Christians are foolish. They they have no logic behind what they do. Uh, she basically says that masks, uh, you would be an idiot if you didn't believe that masks are necessary. So... Obviously, she's, she doesn't talk about the whole country of Sweden that, uh, is on record as probably handling COVID the best. They never went into lockdown. They never had a mask mandate. In fact, the, uh, Minister of Health for Sweden said that there is no evidence that wearing a mask would be beneficial to a country. And so Sweden is basically out of COVID already because they never locked down and they, and they haven't been wearing masks and whatever they, but if you look at their stats, they, they have hardly any, uh, I mean, there are no major cases in Sweden. There aren't, uh, I think there may be like one or two deaths, uh, every couple days or maybe every week or something like that, but, but hardly any deaths, uh, at all anymore. And they, they have an incredible death rate, way better than the United States, way better than Spain, way better than uh, these European countries that have gone through lockdowns or whatever. Uh, it's So in one sense, she doesn't obviously talk about them. She just assumes the fact that masks are so logical and rational. And anybody who, who would argue against masks is just an irrational Christian or something like that because that's stupid. Well, again... You know, if you take a, if you take an honest step back and you look at the mat, the evidence for masks and you read the scientific studies, you look at what happens to the places where masks are implemented. There is, and I'll say this minimally, minimally, there is room for contrary opinions. Minimally. The evidence is at least split. If not, as I would believe, more so on the side of masks doing absolutely nothing, possibly endangering more individuals. So it's, you know, Christians are being painted as anti-science, anti-reason, etc., without any kind of thought process behind that. And it's something that 
you know, as a true Christian, we better have in our back pocket thoughts and reasons and things like that to talk to people. In fact, I was talking, well, I was talking to somebody about masks since she mentions it, uh, the other day. And this, this individual was, was saying, you know, well, why don't all Christians wear masks? Because aren't they loving their neighbor and things like that? And this is a, this is obviously a, a topic that we could go into in much more detail. But I use it as an illustration because I was explaining how somebody could argue that it's not loving to wear a mask, given the actual scientific data that's out there. And this individual was like, wow, I've never even heard that data. And I didn't realize that data was out there because if you just read Huffington Post or other mainstream news sources, you'd come away with one opinion. But obviously, as Christians, we want to try to be rational and reasonable in working through those things. It's kind of the exact opposite of what she's claiming, is that a true Christian doesn't just take others' word for it. The true Christian is trying to do their best to actually show love for their neighbors, while at the same time understanding that God has mandated certain things for the Christian to do. Now, I will say... uh she paints attending, this is another really important point here, but I think it's one that needs to be brought out for, for Christians is that there, there's kind of an assumption underneath her statement saying, I, I would have been attending church if I would have been a part of this group. And attending church is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing because if somebody dies, that's, that's terrible. That's terrible. Now there, there are some important complex considerations given, you know, pandemics and all of these things. That's fine. But the interesting thing is for Christians, and this is just a side note, it's, it's not even a main point of what I, what I'm trying to talk about. But as a side note, one of the things that we should acknowledge and, and unbelievers should know about Christians. This is something that, that unbelievers should know about every Christian and every church is that for Christians, there are things worse than death. There are, there are, th- there are, th- there are many things worse than death for Christians. Because death for us has no, has no terror. There is no fear value in death. I mean, I understand from, from a secularistic, uh, standpoint, if there is any chance that I'm going to die, maybe I don't do something. You know, I, there are people who will not go in vehicles. They will not drive cars because of the risk of dying, which by the way, the risk of dying in a, in a car accident is actually much greater than dying of COVID, statistically speaking. Everybody acknowledges that. That's a well-proven fact. And so it's interesting because you're actually more likely to die on the way to church in your car than you would be of getting COVID and dying from gathering at church. And be that as it may, though, for a Christian, that doesn't matter. We still get in our cars and we go to church because we would much rather obey the Lord and gather together and sing than if, if we die in doing that. I mean, that's not, a, I mean, that's not necessarily a downside to us. I mean, it's the personal fear isn't there for a Christian. Now, granted, this, the side effect of that, the complexity would be, are we, uh, in impacting others and, you know, would we, would we be spreading things? Are we being immature or irresponsible? That's another conversation to have. And again, the scientific evidence doesn't support that, but that would be another consideration to have. But notice, notice the difference here. She's trying to pay, paint Christians as people who are being irrational and believing that God's going to protect them supernaturally or things like that. But not, not really. I mean, all the Christians that I know, uh, completely acknowledge the, the reality of we're not guaranteed another day of life at all, no matter what, even if there was no pandemic. 
And yet we, we don't live in fear of that. We live just being obedient to God and trusting him that he's either going to, going to keep us alive, preserving us, or he will facilitate our death. And that is his good pleasure. That's the Christian worldview. And that's what, uh, that's what unbelievers need to know about believers. So her conclusion of the article is, is this. She says, this global pandemic has revealed there's already a virus inside some American forms of belief, ones that believe God isn't powerful enough to exist outside of gatherings, or ones who believe this is in God's plan so he can show his power. She says this, this kind of spiritual terrorism is showing up on a national scale, and as in my own faith journey, only reason can get us out. So notice what she's doing there. Okay. This is, this is how unbelievers, many of them view Christians now. This is spiritual terrorism, spiritual terrorism. When Christians want to meet together, when they disagree with, with what others have said, uh, either from the medical community or from the, and by the way, it's all from a political standpoint. Now there is nothing apolitical about the medical community uh, working for the government at this point. So, so any kind of disagreement, any kind of, uh, adverse decision to that would be identified as spiritual terrorism in, in her mindset. So notice how we've gone from the beginning of the article saying, Hey, I used to be a part of Christians and let me tell you, there's some problems with them being irrational. And then now she says, by the way, this is spiritual terrorism. So, we are warned that this is how, how unbelievers view Christians, especially in the midst of the COVID pandemic. This is, and I'm not, I wouldn't even say that this is the majority of how non-believers view Christians, but it's something to be aware of because this is obviously not a, uh, this is not a hidden view. This is being published in one of the, one, the Huffington Post, which isn't necessarily the, the bastion of world news or anything like that, but it's, it's indicative of how many people would view Christians. So it's something that we need to consider. Now we shift gears a little bit here to another article. And I think that this one is, uh, I won't spend as much time on this one, but it's just as important. And it actually comes from yesterday on September 24th. And it's entitled The Death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg Pushed Me to Join the Satanic Temple. So this individual is writing about how the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg caused her to join the Satanic Temple. Now, <clears throat> this is uh, something that just happened recently. Obviously, if you've been following the news at all, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And Al Mohler has an excellent treatment, uh, a special edition of the briefing on, I believe it was Saturday that um, last week that he posted it about just what her death means and what's that's that what that sets up politically speaking and obviously this is a big deal for especially the left uh in the political realm the left politically because if uh the republicans implement uh, another supreme court justice in the place of Ruth Bader Ginsburg then that would allegedly swing the court to the right uh with a 6-3 majority now for those who are conservatives, they obviously are all in favor of that because Chief uh, Justice John Roberts is not really a conservative vote. He votes, you know, more often than not with the left. And so there is not really a majority 5-4 as it existed anyway, because Roberts was, was basically a non-conservative in many of his rulings. 
So this is, this is a very uh, important debate among Christians at the moment. And so, so this individual, Jamie Smith is writing and she says, basically, <clears throat> I am a 40 something, uh, attorney mother who lives in a quiet neighborhood with a yard and a garage full of scooters and soccer balls. I I walk my children to get ice cream, spend times hiking in national parks with my children. I'm not the type of person who would normally consider becoming a Satanist, but these are not normal times. And then so she talks about what she did when she first heard of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. She says, my first reaction was not of grief, but of fear. And her fear is not for her self-terror, but her fear, ultimately, as the article goes on, is that somehow her, her daughters will not be able to get an abortion. That's, that's her fear. Her fear is that Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade could be overturned. And if that happens, according to her, the, the religious institutions would be would be interacting with the state on a very high level and so that would be encroaching uh on the the rights of individuals so this is what she says she says when justice ginsburg died i knew immediately that action was needed on a scale that we have not seen before our democracy has become so fragile that the loss of one of the last guardians of common sense and decency in government less than two months before a pivotal election has put our civil and reproductive rights in danger like never before. And so I have turned to Satanism. I mean, just so crazy. Like this is just something out of, you know, fiction novel or something like that. So she goes on to talk about what the uh, Satanic Temple is. She says they are not affiliated with the Church of Satan per se. In fact, she says that they don't, the Satanic Temple members do not worship Satan and most are atheists. Now, I would qualify that and say perhaps they don't think that they worship Satan, but ultimately their affiliation with the Satanic Temple is obviously something that Satan highly endorses. Their sacrament of abortion is something that Satan would highly endorse, but she says the satanic temple temple uses the devil as a symbol of rebellion. Well, be that as it may, you might think it's just symbolic, but I guarantee you that uh, at the end of life, you will see that you are the one who was deceived and not vice versa. So what the satanic temple stands for, uh, she lists a link to their seven fundamental tenets or beliefs. And the one that she lists, which I think is is really indicative here of, of what they stand for, is the quote struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. Now notice that law and institution does not govern what justice is. And by the way, don't let your biblical presupposition uh, deceive you there because their version of justice is not your version of justice. So this is part of the ongoing conversation in our world about social justice and how all these things work together. Well, just so you know, their version of justice is not biblical, right? So their version of justice is going to fall more in line with a subjective uh, reality, which is based on critical theory. Uh, that's, that's the ongoing push right now. And, and we're going to do a separate podcast on critical theory, uh, coming up here. I, I have a lot of uh, episodes that we need to do. I just need time to do it all because uh, this is a very busy uh, two months coming up, but we're going to try to do some episodes that are dealing with some of the upcoming issues with the election and some of the 
things like that that we can think through. I think it'd be helpful for us. So, uh, she goes on and says, when Justice Ginsburg's death suddenly made combating the threats to reproductive rights and a government free from religious interference more urgent, I knew it was time to join them, that is the satanic temple, and support their conceptual and legal battles. So in other words, she's saying, listen, I, I knew I needed to get involved in this and the, the best in her mind, the best way to pursue the, the pursue the right to maintain abortion and the murder of infants is to join the satanic temple because they are holding up this as a major part of their religion. And just think about that for a second. That That is incredible that somebody can make a argument saying, listen, I, I really want, I really want to support abortion. So the, the best way I think that I can do that is to join the satanic temple. And that is one of the best ways that we have for us to pursue this, this abortion. This is one of the people who, this is one of the organizations that's, that's in our corner fighting for this. That's just incredible. So she goes on and says, uh, and this is what I, I mentioned with her being afraid of these things. She says, in the hours after Justice Ginsburg's death, I sat wondering what the future would hold for my daughters, their ability to live in a country where the religious beliefs of others would not play a role in their right to assert autonomy over their own bodies was suddenly starkly in danger. Traditional means of keeping abortion safe and legal seemed woefully inadequate to protect the rights that women in the generation before me had fought so hard to secure. So notice what she's saying. This is very typical with the with the arguments of those who would promote abortion and the slaughter of infants, they're going to argue that it's reproductive freedom. That's how they're going to label it. But obviously, uh, if you just spend a little bit of time talking about what's going on, is you have the slaughter of a unborn child. That's what's going on. That you can't say reproductive freedom and just say, oh, well, just to, this is to put it in illustrative terms. If I want to murder somebody, I could just say, oh, it's just, uh, my, uh, conscience, my liberty of conscience. That's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm killing this individual so that I can have liberty to think how I want to think. That's, is, does that make it better just because I renamed it, uh, to, uh, having a liberty of conscience, a freedom of conscience? That's, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm practicing. Uh, I'm, I'm killing an individual so that I can have a freedom of thought or whatever. That's ridiculous. Obviously that doesn't make sense. And there's no reason to allow that kind of language to fit in here as well. But that's obviously how everyone's doing it. They rename it, hopefully, uh, align this with their kind of thinking, reproductive freedom or things like that. But ultimately what they're talking about is ending the life of another individual. They're ending the life of a baby and that's wrong. Biblically speaking, taking the life of an image bearer of God is always wrong. And so this is going to, uh, this is going to be, uh, at least from a Christian worldview, it, it makes no sense. There's no, there's no good argument that she can make with here, but she's doing her best to fit into the secular, uh, mold and this, this different way of speaking so that her argument takes on a little more of a, uh, pro-woman appeal, even though really what we're talking about is two individuals, the woman and the baby. And so obviously there's more to it than that. Now she talks about the, uh, satanic temple's efforts to, 
to basically pursue legal action and how they've launched different campaigns and filed uh, lawsuits in order to try to pursue their their ends. In fact, she says specifically that the Satanic Temple hopes to appear before the Supreme Court in a case challenging a Missouri abortion law that requires those seeking to terminate their pregnancy to first receive materials asserting that their abortion would end the life of a separate unique person. The temple argues that these materials violate the deeply held religious beliefs of one of its members regarding bodily autonomy and scientifically reasonable personal choice. So, in essence, what they're saying is that Missouri has a law saying that if you're going to get an abortion, you need to first get this material which says, hey, you're about to end the life of somebody. Do you really want to do that? And so they're saying you can't do that because that's against our religious conviction. So notice what they're saying is the satanic temple it's part of their religious conviction that the murder of an unborn child is essential to their faith. That's what they're saying. And they're not apologizing about that. And that is the culture in which we live. We literally live in a culture where this kind of argument, this kind of belief doesn't show up uh, just on the fringes anymore. But this is, this is really the, the main sacrament of the left. This is, and by the way, this is why, um, and I don't think that this is incorrect, but, but you, you sometimes hear it used pejoratively about how many Christians are one issue voters. You'll, you'll hear that term, one issue voters. Well, what they mean by that is that Christians will often vote just on the basis of somebody's view on abortion. And that is, uh, I don't think that's, that's wrong. If you think about like murder and the quality of murder being, uh, being involved, uh, in these, in these levels, it's important to understand that this is something that is a huge cultural battle at the moment. And, you know, when the, when Roe versus Wade ended, uh, happened, I'm sure nobody thought that, that, you know, you go down the road, uh, 30 years essentially, and you still have this being a major debate. Uh, and I think it's, uh, as many individuals have pointed out, Al Mohler most recently to my memory, uh, pointed out, you have the advent of all these ultrasounds and things like that. And what it ends up doing is showing people, Hey, these, these unborn children inside us are valuable. They're precious. They look just like us immediately. Uh, there is, there is human indication all the way along. And this is something that as it's been revealed, you realize, wait, we, we really are acting in just incredibly evil ways when we kill, uh, unborn children this way. And so we point this out, but the reason I wanted to draw attention to this story in particular is because this is kind of a, a good template for seeing how, how the need for what they would call reproductive autonomy or reproductive freedom is being pushed. Now they don't call it abortion. They don't call it murder. They don't call it the killing of unborn infants, but that's what's going on. And so they're repeddling this in a different way, but that's what's going on. And ultimately as Christians, this, this again is the way that a lot of individuals think. And I would go so far as to say this, this is something uh, that a lot of us don't think about, but many people on the cultural left understand that they are killing a, a unborn infant. They know that it's a human being, but that doesn't matter to them. It's the debate isn't over whether a child is a child or not. Uh, there's a great, uh, video on this by Saiten Bruggenkate. 
And, uh, I think it's called answering Matt Walsh. Uh, and if you YouTube that, it's just incredible. He does a really good job of just showing how people who go into these uh, abortion factories, these murder factories, they, they go in there and they know that they're killing babies. It's, it's not a surprise to them when they find out, oh, you mean my child is actually alive? They can feel pain. You know, they, they have a heartbeat. That's not a surprise to them. They, they understand, uh, they understand that. In fact, John Piper is on record as, uh, you know, really studying to, to meet with this abortion doctor and convince him that he was killing a child. And he met with the abortion doctor and he was get, getting ready to launch into his 10 points. And, uh, Piper, uh, said, what surprised me most was that immediately he, he stopped me and said, I know that they're a child. Uh, there's no way to doubt that, but I think it's the lesser evil to kill the child than to allow the child to, to live or to be born. That, that, that was how the doctor was operating is he, he was operating on a lesser evil. And, uh, it's just incredible, just incredible. So this is, you know, I, I, it's, it's difficult reviewing these two articles just because I think it, it gives us, uh, a bit of weight in understanding what kind of, what kind of cultural battle we find ourselves in. We, we find ourselves against those who are misidentifying Christians or associating Christianity with a anti-rational kind of worldview. But at the same time, you have this, this paganistic secular viewpoint, which is rallying around this reproductive freedom, this, this pro-abortion worldview of the non the just the thing that they cannot uh equivocate on whatsoever is the slaughter of of infants this is this is a major part of the leftist worldview the secular worldview and so we as christians need to be aware of that and we need to you know call out to god to intervene uh, on the innocent's behalf uh for the children and we need to do our job about teaching the church about the sanctity of human life uh what it means to be made in god's image and just uh, being salt and light to the world with regard to that. So it's a bit of a heavy episode in one sense, but I hope it's helpful just seeing some of the cultural thoughts uh, that are going around in the world. We have some more uh, episodes lined up to help uh, as we have these cultural conversations going into the election. Hopefully they'll be helpful to you. If you have any comments or questions, please reach out to me through my website. You can find the contact form there. You can also visit the shepherds.edu website, the Shepherds Theological Seminary, where I teach. And we have a a day at Shepherds coming up in October. If you're interested, uh, visit the website for more information there. As always, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.